Welcome to the STFM Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. In this podcast, we speak to leaders in academic family medicine about a variety of leadership topics. And now your host, Dr. Saria Carter-Sicosia. Well, today we have our Madam President, the President of the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine, Dr. Linda Meyerholtz. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much, Saria. I'm very honored to be here. Well, thank you for taking the time. And I know that our audience wants to hear everything you have to say, and they're going to be really excited about the wisdom and the insight that you have to share with us today. And before we go any further, I would love for you to introduce yourself a little bit about where you come from, what your thoughts are, and what inspires you about family medicine. Well, I am an associate professor and a clinical psychologist in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And the other role I wear at this point is as president of STFM. And I am so honored to serve in that role. I think it really speaks volumes to our community at STFM that we honor our interprofessional colleagues and to be able to serve as president of STFM as a psychologist, um, I think is a true tribute again to our community and to the leadership in STFM. Um, For me, I think one of the joys that that I have about working with family medicine is really that focus on whole person care. We've moved away from this artificial dichotomy of the mind and the body in family medicine. And there's a tremendous movement towards really integrating behavioral health care in primary care so we can really meet the whole person needs of our patients and our communities. And to me, that is very inspiring and really a critical way for us to start to address the true um, mental health needs as well as um, general health needs of our communities. I think the other thing that really inspires me is the opportunity to work with future family physicians. And this is so evident in the process we are at this time of year of interviewing so many wonderful applicants for residency programs. And it is truly inspiring. We are interviewing candidates who are our future colleagues who are so passionate, really have done inspirational things and committed to changing our communities in such positive ways. They're passionate, they're idealistic, and it's just so energizing for those of us who may have been in the field for a while to know that the future of family medicine is very bright when we have a chance to meet these new young colleagues coming into family medicine. So true. It it is inspiring when you see the light go on in their eyes and in their hearts. And I I feel the same, Dr. Meyerholtz, the passion that we're seeing today, the purpose-driven individuals and their accomplishments by the time we see them and while they're interviewing to then select a residency program, it is inspiring. And I am often in awe by what they bring to the table. They teach us so much. They absolutely do. Every day, they help keep us Um, abreast of what's happening in the world and really force us to think about 
how do we need to meet their needs as we go forward as educators for family medicine? Well, and you hit on this with mentioning the future family physicians that are coming forward. I think about those of us who have taught medical students and residents, whether it's in the community or an academic institution, and we're oftentimes giving feedback or instructing, educating based on our personal experience and perspective. Mm -hmm. So I want to circle back to your comment just a moment ago, where we are Xing out the dichotomy, as you mentioned, and separating out the mind from the body and treating individuals as whole persons and what that means. So for those of us who have been family physicians for decades now, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm saying that, but for decades, teach us this. Can you give us an example of what would have been considered okay, in fact, encouraged as we teach the dichotomy now over to the whole person? What does that mean to you in words and examples? A great question. So I think you historically, if someone came to see their family physician, they may not even have thought about bringing up the fact that they were experiencing symptoms of depression or symptoms of anxiety. And, and we've really turned the tables with that. We now have standard protocols that say we are going to screen for those concerns as a part of a primary care practice. And we're teaching our family physicians to be very comfortable in asking difficult questions such as, how are you feeling emotionally? How can I support you in that space? When I first started teaching in family medicine, people were afraid that if I ask about depression, that the floodgates will open and I won't know what to do with that. And my whole day will get thrown off because the emotions will be just so evident and raw. And people were just afraid to talk about emotional experiences. That's changed dramatically now. Now our family physicians are asking about emotional health and they're feeling more confident in their ability to intervene. And as I teach residents, it's so important to recognize that our interventions are not just about let me prescribe an SSRI, but there's a lot of interventions that we can do in the context of our relationship with that patient over time that can make a meaningful difference in that patient's life. Whether that is teaching them a little bit about how to downregulate their um, nervous system so that they have different ways to moderate the stress that's impacting all of our lives. And that may be something as teaching diaphragmatic breathing, for example. It may also be just taking that pause in that moment to listen to our patients and really giving them a space to share their stories. We know that having someone witness and just listen to our experience, that in and of itself is also very healing. So those are some things that I've seen really change over time. And patients really appreciate that. Patients don't want to be sent to an outside place to have their mental health addressed when they're already very comfortable with the team-based care that they get from their family physician. They want their care in one place because it's safe, it's comfortable, it's known, and it helps reduce the stigma about receiving mental health care. Mm. 
and the team-based care, you said it, I know this is also your expertise, is bringing together, as you so eloquently said earlier, the interprofessionalism of family medicine. That is the beauty of our specialty and how we learn and are trained to work within teams. And I think back as you tell that story of the transition from that dichotomy that we we grew up in, if you will, to the whole person care. And you're right. Up until a few years ago, we didn't routinely screen for depression. And now that the USPSTF, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, has recommended anxiety screening as well, the world is changing. More focus on that whole person, mind and body together and integrated, not as separate entities is really important. But that team-based care, I think, is important for mental health, mental health for our patients. You mentioned the, the listening, looking into the eyes of our patient means so much to them in that connection. I think that's what you were referring to. And it is more than the medication. Medication can be important, but it following back to that whole person model, it matters. So we hit on the patient. That's really important. The patient and the family and those we treat. How about physician heal thyself? Can you talk a little bit about your experience? Because it is lengthy. It is, um, it's deep and it's broad in how we encourage, enable, and empower our providers, our physicians and nurse practitioners, physician assistants, our team members, everyone to recognize their own whole person care. I think this is such a critical issue. And particularly, it's not something that's new. I mean, we've known that our healthcare workforce um, often has higher rates of depression and suicide than the general population. And there's a whole host of reasons for that, including sort of the long hours that people work, the heavy workloads systems that are not necessarily responsive and fostering autonomy for um, providers, more time spent with computers and administrative tasks and actually with patients, all of those things start to impact the well-being of our healthcare workforce. And then throw on top of that, of course, the pandemic. And so our healthcare workforce is really struggling there was a recent Medscape um, survey in just this past year where they surveyed 13,000 physicians across the United States. And the data was alarming. One in five physicians who responded to that survey said that they were depressed. And even more alarming, one in 10 had thoughts of suicide or had attempted suicide. It also impacts our learners, right? that we know that suicide is the leading, leading cause of death among male residents and the second leading cause of death among female residents. We really need to address this. And we need to address it from systematic changes that need to happen so that we can really start to address true well-being. This is not about healthcare workforce not having the resiliency or the stamina or the skills to take care of their own well-being. It's about system-wide issues that make this so oppressive at times and make it very, very difficult for healthcare providers to seek help when they are struggling. 
And so I think, you know, one of the things we definitely need to address some of those structural factors, but that can also feel very daunting. It's such a big issue. How do we know where to start? And for me, this was a critical part of my journey in the last six months or so is how do we move from that space of feeling like this is such a big issue? I don't know how to intervene to narrowing down to something that feels like we can start to change and make an important difference. And that has to do with addressing that stigma about receiving mental health care. And that's something that I've started to put a lot of energy into more recently. As I talked about this in my president's address at our annual meeting in Indianapolis this past spring, I had so many people come up to me afterwards and start to share their personal stories. And the stories really revolve around fear and stigma about receiving mental health care. I had a resident come up to me, for example, who said that she was very depressed um, during her internship year and she appropriately sought care. She was prescribed antidepressants, but she was afraid to take them and never did take them because she feared that it would impact her ability to get licensed. I talked with another practicing physician, and this is someone who had been practicing for years, who again, experienced depression, sought mental health treatment, but then really struggled with this internal conflict when it came time to renew his license. And he had to answer questions about his mental health and how probing that was and how invasive that felt to him. And did he, should he answer honestly and run the risk of really having to disclose more about his personal health than really he was comfortable in doing so? To finally, just recently talking to another physician who's part of a Facebook group for physicians, she was telling me that oftentimes in that Facebook group, people will bring up the mental health concerns that they're struggling with. And the advice that they're given from their peers is go seek help, but do it in a different county so you don't run into any colleagues and make sure you pay for it in cash so you don't have, there's no paper trail that shows that you are receiving counseling services. That's the advice physicians are giving each other. And it just perpetuates the ongoing fear and stigma about receiving mental health. And what this means is a lot of people are suffering alone. And this shame that we associate with carrying this burden alone can be overwhelming. And we hear those stories, sadly, oftentimes after the suicide attempt or after a successful suicide attempt. And You brought up storytelling and these stories are so powerful and thinking about our audience and purely considering the statistics, our audience has experienced this themselves. Mm -hmm. And if they haven't, they know someone who has, whether it was a peer, a family member, and again, or themselves. So I've, I can't tell you how many of these applications I've filled out, renewals, recertifications, and the question, the ghastly question is always there. Have yes. you ever been diagnosed 
with a mental health disorder. And there are many ways that it's phrased across different states. And you talked about starting the change by uh, eliminating the stigma. What can we do systemically to eliminate, to eradicate the shame associated with mental health challenges for our providers, for physicians and other team members? I keep coming back to other team members because like you, I'm so passionate about the interprofessional relationships. It's not just physicians I see that are experiencing this, but it's the entire team that is in the patient care environment. Well, definitely one of the things we need to do is to start to change the culture. There is this culture, um, particularly in medical education and healthcare, that we are should be self-sacrificing and hold this place of sort of the stoic self-sufficiency that somehow we are superhuman and that we must put the needs of everyone else over and above our own needs. We need to start to change that. You know, the same um, Medscape survey asked people about why they keep some of their mental health concerns secret. And some of the quotes were really prevalent for me. Um, they talk about, I feel I should know how to deal with this myself, even though I wish I didn't have to. Another quote was, talking with someone makes you look like a failure, unable to cope with life's problems. So we really need to start to change that perception. And one of the ways we can do that is by telling our own personal stories, starting to share that with our learners, with our colleagues, to start to say, no, I struggled with this and this is how I handled this and normalize it and make it a strength to say, yes, I was taking care of myself rather than it being something that is looked at as a failure. The other piece is we need to start to change the fear that seeking mental health care will impact our ability to be licensed or receive hospital credentials. Now, there's some really positive changes that have been happening in that area in the last five years or so. And I think it's really important to educate people about some of these positive changes. Because for those of us who may have filled out lots of these applications over many years, we're so used to seeing it, we may not even be aware these changes have occurred. So one of the things is in 2018, the Federation of State Medical Boards really published some new guidelines for state uh, medical boards to start to change that stigmatizing language and move away from asking about a mental health history to focusing on current conditions that are not being treated at this point that are causing impairment. And they move away again also from focusing on any history of mental health concerns. They move away from language that dichotomizes mental health versus physical concerns. And part of those recommendations are to make sure that licensure applications include statements that support and encourage people to seek mental health care if they're having some mental health concerns. So those are some really positive changes to provide some guidance back to states. And some other things we're seeing as well, U.S. Surgeon General recently just came out with a report really highlighting the importance of 
policy changes to destigmatize mental health, um, seeking mental health treatment for healthcare workforce. The National Academy of Medicine also just published another report. And one of their tactics on this is really changing hospital policies and state medical board licensure applications. So there's energy around this. The data on how quickly things are moving is a little bit um, confusing though. If we, again, the data that we've got primarily focuses on physicians and not our broader healthcare workforce, but a 2021 review showed that 39 states now had changed their questions to focus only on current impairment and not necessarily illness, diagnosis, or previous treatment. Another body that's looking at this and collecting data very regularly is the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. And they keep an updated database looking again at physician licensing within states. And they are reporting now that 19 states are really aligning their applications much more with the recommendations the Federation of State Medical Boards. We know that nursing applications have a long way to go. And there's other healthcare professionals where the data really isn't there. We don't have good data on what it's like for physical therapists, um, nutritionists, pharmacists, behavioral health folks necessarily. And so there's work that needs to be done there. The other thing we don't know is how well healthcare systems are now starting to align their credentialing forms with these new recommendations. And I had to recently fill out a healthcare recommendation form and saw the exact same language that you talked about earlier. They're asking, it was still asking about a, have I ever had a history of a mental health concern? And that honestly is, doesn't, is out of step with legislation like the American Dis with Disabilities Act. Those are actually have considered unlawful to ask some of those questions. Um, so we still have a lot of work to do. And so some of the things that we within STFM have been focusing on is how do we bring awareness to the positive changes that have happened? And then how do we also empower um, our members and our learners to start to advocate for change in this domain so that if they are working in a healthcare system where the credentialing forms are really out of date, and still create that stigmatizing language and fear that they've got some tools that they could access that would help them advocate for change in that system or advocate for change within their state. Their state is still behind the times. So when we think about this opportunity to make a systems level change that could really impact the health and well-being. That's what I'm talking about during this president's year. Really educating people about the positive changes that have, have occurred and then creating tools and resources and linking people with those resources that do exist to help them advocate for change in their systems. I sense, I feel the positivity. I'm recognizing the change. I have personally witnessed in some states they have started to change that language that we see. And we know diagnosis should not be the overall decision maker for impairment. And impairment can be found in so many ways. That could be a whole other podcast, couldn't it? 
and impairment, whether it's physical or mental health. And I, I think that these conversations must continue. I do believe, and I am also optimistic that they will continue, knowing that 19 states are now considered best practice. That's almost over half. I heard you mention 39 states have begun to change their language based on a, a 2021 study that we're seeing. This has to happen from, as you mentioned, through advocacy from within mm-hmm. and outside. So I'm so grateful for your support, for your experience and expertise in this space, and most importantly, your passion for this work. I do believe that when people hear stories that are similar to theirs, they're more likely to open up themselves. And that's the start. You mentioned that that first piece is to eliminate the stigma. That second is that systemic change that we're seeing and finding ways to find your voice. Now, I have another question for you. Serving in administrative roles in many different organizations, I've recognized, for one, when we start to see the cracks, when we start to see someone becoming impaired, it can be a behavioral issue. It can be not showing up to work. Perhaps it's manifesting with physical symptoms. All of those things, I think, are important for leaders to recognize. So I think that's important. I want to start there with how do leaders, supporters of individuals, whether it's a medical student, a resident, um, a practicing physician, how do we as leaders begin to recognize, support, and empower that concern to come forward in not a judgmental way, but a true assessment and a support within their employer environment? So I think that is a really important question. And as leaders, we you have to wear a slightly different hat than if we're a colleague. If we're in a leadership role and we're really concerned about someone's performance and we're really wondering about how they're doing, we need to be very mindful that we focus on the behaviors that we're seeing and talk to the person about those kinds of things and say, I, you know, I'm concerned about you. These are the things I've noticed and I want to support you and help you to make sure that you're successful and that you're doing okay. So I think framing it from that place as I'm concerned about you as an individual, that I've noticed some changes that just don't seem, you don't seem quite yourself. Um, and how can I support you to help you be successful, to make sure that you're t- doing what you, you need to to take care of yourself and that we as a system around you are providing the supports necessary to help you be successful. It's not easy to go to that place and we often can't ask about a person's physical health that might be impacting their job performance. Likewise, we can't ask about their mental health that may be impacting their job performance in a leadership role. And so we have to focus on the behaviors, but I think we can talk about our concern for them And the most important thing is, what can we do as a system to help you? Can I link you with some resources? What would be helpful to you at this point? I think those are really important questions about empowering that person and trying to create that safe space. It's a little bit different sometimes if it's a colleague that we may be concerned about or a really good friend where we can say, you know, gosh, it seems like you've been down. I'm wondering, you know, what's happening for you. I'm wondering if you might be experiencing some symptoms of depression. To be able to open that conversation with a colleague can be so freeing, right? That someone 
is willing to ask and willing to go to that space and say, I'm willing to be here with you um, if you're hurting. And I want to, again, help you in ways that you think would be helpful to you. And I offer some suggestions about how to reach out and get help, some of those kinds of things. Um, And that's really important. I think that's an important part of what we learned definitely through the pandemic is how much we need to look out for each other. And there was such a more emphasis on lots of people taking on different roles to support each other and help each other as we were trying to work and help and save our communities. And it broke down some barriers, I think, that may have been there, some silos of about professional roles over time. So I think, again, that's one of the benefits of the pandemic is much more enhanced team-based care and recognizing the strengths that everyone brings. And with that, hopefully, a willingness to approach some of our colleagues and say, I'm concerned about you. We appreciate the SAGE guidance, and this is so important. I'm sure many of us can look back and recognize Mm -hmm. people who were hurting, people who needed help. And oftentimes as leaders, we need that guidance. And and what I heard you say is observing the behavior and reporting behaviors back to them, but in a sense of concern. And the next thing I heard is the empathy is I'm concerned about this behavior and I'm concerned about you. And what can I do to help support you? That's important to start rather than what's wrong with you. Or I notice you're you're not performing satisfactorily or whatever words we use that, again, can create that shame. That's very important to be aware of. In the colleague space, people oftentimes feel safer. In the workplace, we often hear, find a best friend at work. Who's your best friend at work? Whether it's a best friend or someone you can rely on, someone you feel safe with, someone you can confide in is so important at work to eliminate or prevent social isolation, which I think oftentimes happens, physicians in particular, because of the responsibility we have. And you mentioned the administrative burden, the extra work that falls on our plates, the responsibility that we have. So I want to close with one more question. And the most important person is the person who's hurting. And whether it's a patient, it's a family member, but in this case, if it's the medical student, if it's the resident, if it is the physician, if you are one of these people, often and unfortunately, the first sign of awareness we have is when someone is getting in trouble at work for absenteeism, outburst, or acting out. And unfortunately, in many cases, there is drug use and drug use disorders that begin to rise up and become some significant functional issues for individuals. What What wisdom would you give those who are hurting, who perhaps are burned out, who are close to that edge? How do they present themselves to seek help professionally? I think this is so important because what I've seen, sadly, in many cases is now someone has a a black mark, if you will, on their record Mm -hmm. for misbehaving, whether it's the, the medical staff and your evaluations, your workplace performance. How can we help these individuals before that is their leading story rather than something that we can avoid and prevent? And I think, you know, one of the things is that we need to make sure that we're creating a culture in our systems where people know 
that it's okay to seek mental health help and they know what those resources are. So we reduce the barrier of just, I don't even know where to turn. I don't know where to go. And to have those open conversations within our departments and our faculty and with our learners to normalize that this is, you know, the work that we do is stressful. And oftentimes we may not necessarily see it ourselves, but it's our gift to our colleagues then to be able to approach and, and say, I'm concerned. And again, to know what resources are available. And it could be that it may be an EAP program that could be a resource for um, our colleagues and ourselves. But sometimes those aren't necessarily most easily accessible. And it's important to know in your own healthcare system what resources are available. We have a program at the University of North Carolina, for example, that's called Taking Care of Our Own. It's specifically for physicians, but there's similar some programs also for other healthcare workers um, to really prioritize and make sure that there's an easy access to get someone in and seen by a mental health professional as quickly as possible. And other organizations have similar kinds of programs, but there's others out there as well. And for example, there's a project called the Emotional PPE um, Project. And this was specifically for healthcare workers who want to connect with a licensed mental health professional. And if you Google emotional PPE project, you can sign up to be linked with a mental health professional. One of the things I love about this is there is no cost. There's no billing of insurance. It's just a service of other mental health professionals who are volunteering their time to be available to the healthcare workforce, recognizing that there have been so many barriers to accessing care. There's also another resource that I'd like to mention to folks that are often, you know, there's a physician support line and they have a phone number and a website, which is www.physiciansupportline.com. That can be a resource for physicians and other resources such as here, RX Med is another resource that's out there. Again, these are resources that are available and recognize that our healthcare workforce just doesn't work nine to five jobs. So oftentimes there are mental health professionals who are available after hours and on weekends um, to try and meet the needs of a workforce that is working very, very hard and often long hours. And so to make sure you're very familiar as if you're a leader or um, a residency director, a med school advisor, that you know what resources are available in your community, have those at hand. Make sure you're publicizing those on a regular basis to your healthcare workforces and your learners so that it's easy to access, easy to find, and that at least takes away one of the barriers to seeking mental health care. I had no idea that the number of resources I'm taking notes and writing a list of all these abundant and generous opportunities for people to connect with help. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your passion for well-being and whole person care. I think we heard that loud and clear. The work that you're doing this year and your leadership for the STFM as president, we're so grateful for you for our focus on interprofessionalism and taking care of each other. I love this, taking care of our own. 
And we've got to start here. This is such important work. And remembering that if we don't take care of each other, who will be left to take care of? We've all learned the adage, put your oxygen on first before you can even consider giving oxygen to someone else. Anything else that you would share with us today? I know our audience has truly enjoyed this podcast session, and I bet they're taking notes just as I am with all of the wealth of information you brought to the table. Well, I'll just give a plug. Um, I have a wonderful, there's a task force of STFM members who are really working on creating some resources around this advocacy issue. So we're going to be launching a website soon as part of our STFM um, broader website that's going to link folks to some advocacy tools. And we're also going to be sponsoring an advocacy station and education session at the annual conference. So for individuals who want to learn more about how do I take action, please join us at that advocacy station and we will help you identify some resources to communicate right then and there with policy leaders in your state. If your state is one of those that has not jumped um, into this new um, recognition of We've got to change the culture. We've got to reduce the stigma. We'll help you start to advocate right then and there. And so we'll invite you to be a part of that. Undoubtedly, we will have a number of advocates and champions after our STFM conference coming up. And we'll all be watching for the website changes and the information that will be available. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Meyer Holtz, for being with us today, for sharing your wisdom and supporting family medicine and those who teach it and those who receive it. Thank you. It's been my honor. You've been listening to the SDFM podcast produced by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. Visit us at sdfm.org and follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. This podcast is copyright Society of Teachers of Family Medicine 2023.